This is episode 26 of The Janet Lewis Show. In the podcast, I'll be talking with people who have tapped into what they love and are living the life they imagined. Or maybe they didn't imagine it, but have become super successful at what they're doing. They've been able to figure out what gives them energy or makes them happy and turn it into a business. Or they found a career that allows them to shine. We're going to talk about their life story, how they got to where they are, and what has influenced their journey. Today, we're talking with Erin Henderson, founder of the Wine Sisters, where she is also the chief sommelier. Erin started out her professional career as a reporter and journalist, but she was drawn back into the world of wine and became a certified sommelier in 2008 through the Canadian Association of Professional Sommeliers. She worked for some of Toronto's top venues before launching the Wine Sisters with her sister, Courtney. The Wine Sisters offer in-person and virtual wine tasting experiences, exclusive wine tours, wine training and education programs, full food and beverage event management services, as well as my favorite, party planning. (laughs) Erin has been entertaining and educating and sharing her love of wine and party planning for over 14 years. She loves to take the stress out of planning for her busy clients and has earned the trust of top executives and companies that need the job done right. She not only runs the Wine Sisters, but also shares her experiences as a sommelier and party planner with her students at George Brown, where she's an instructor for helping to educate the party planners of the future. Erin has been featured as a wine and cocktail expert on CTV's Your Morning and The Social, and she's been featured in the Huffington Post, Maclean's, theloop.ca, and the Canadian Special Events Magazine. Erin is super passionate about all things food and drink. She is outgoing and entertaining. She wants her clients and followers to have an amazing experience and is willing to go above and beyond to ensure they are delighted. I can't wait to hear Erin's story because I don't know a lot about it, but what I've learned is that she became enchanted with food and drink and traveling at a very young age, and she loves to take people along the journey. So Erin, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure, Janet. I'm flattered that you'd asked me to be here. So thank you. Yeah. So we, uh, just so everybody knows, uh, Aaron, you and I originally met and I was trying to think it was 2018 or 19, but it was around that time frame, and it was at an event for female entrepreneurs. And we ended up at the same table. And what I loved is like, I love that you started a business with your sister uh, because I also started a business with my sister many years ago. So I can't wait to hear how that came about. And I also loved hearing about, um, like you just love what you're doing and your passion comes through so much. And like, it's so incredibly motivating when you get to sit with someone who loves what they do and that you just want to share it with everyone. Uh, So I can't wait to hear this. So Erin, perhaps we can start off with a bit of your history. Like, where did you grow up? What was it like? What were you passionate about as a young girl? And then we can move into how you jumped from journalism to wine and what made you want to start your own business? Like we have so much to cover. So much. (laughs) <laughs> oh my God, could you imagine if I was 80 and not 46? It would just be like beyond, beyond. <laughs> We'd uh, have to do a whole series, a whole series. Yeah, like <laughs> one. Um, okay, so if we wanted to start about where I grew up, um, I actually just grew up down the street, like an hour down the street in Guelph, Ontario. And uh, it was a pretty idyllic childhood, like really nothing to report. And, you know, you kind of wish sometimes that you had those dramatic, you know, I was raised by a diplomat. I wasn't. I had, you know, two parents that lived, you know, two cars, 
two cats, pool in the backyard, suburban, you know, walked a block to school. It was all very quaint and charming and all very Pleasantville. And so I'm still very close to my family now. So we all hang all the time. So yeah, I, I grew up in Guelph, Ontario. I was always drawn to the arts. Um, right from when I was little, it's funny, my mom had, as most moms do, they create a little memory book for you when you're a child. And we filled it out together. And I think we were filling this out. I think the date said that I was about three and a half or four years old, and I wanted to be a dancer. But then as I grew up, I always wanted to be an actress. So I was involved in acting, uh, primary school, and then in high school, and I did community theater. And I eventually went to university uh, for drama on stage theater, uh, not the production part, but being on stage. So uh, I was always interested in things that had to do with the arts, primarily acting, but a little bit of dancing. I'm not a very good dancer and I certainly don't have the body type that's, you know, in the discipline that, that is demanded of, of good dancers. But I did, I always was really interested in, in performance and, and acting. So that was sort of the, the main focus of my youth and growing up was always being sort of performance driven. So, so that's what I did. But then how did you decide to get into journalism then? Mm. Well, I remember, um, so I went to university for drama, as I said, I went to the University of Guelph and I was there for about three semesters and I just really wasn't taking the shine to the university the way I wanted to. And a girlfriend of mine, I was working at the Red Lobster in Guelph and uh, it was the end of the semester, you know, a couple of days before Christmas, school was out, you know, university would have started up again in a couple of weeks. And I went to work and she said, Hey, and she was, a, she was a colleague and I guess a light friend, like certainly not a great friend. Like, you know, we got along well enough, but we didn't hang or anything. And she said, um, Hey, what are you doing next semester? And I was like, well, going to school. And she said, well, would you rather come to Banff with me? And I said, sure thing. So I got rid of my apartment within like two weeks. I got rid of my apartment, put my stuff in storage, uh, bought a ticket and moved to Banff with $300 in my pocket. So that was my parents' proudest moment of me. And um, I went out to Banff and, you know, worked as a server and figured it out. And I was trying to figure out how I was going to be an actress. And uh, then I realized, you know, I love acting. I love performance. I love theater. I admire the people who do it. And I especially admire the people who will grind it out regardless of the ups and downs. I am not one of those people. And so as much as I love it, I just couldn't imagine being a server for the rest of my life. And this is also not putting down serving. I was a server for a very long time, uh, but it's not, there wasn't a life's ambition to stay there. So I wanted to do other things. So I realized I may or may not have the talent to make a living at this. So I would rather not, I, I don't want to take a gamble on that. So I thought, well, what else can I do that's performance driven? And I like telling stories. So I know I'll become a journalist because that is obviously a far more guaranteed career. I mean, really. Um, so anyway, so I did that. So I, after a couple of weeks, Banff turned out not to be my thing. So I only was out there for about six or eight weeks. And then I came home, went back to work at the Red Lobster, saved up my money, and then was accepted to journalism school. So the following September, I went to journalism school in Toronto. And uh, that was a college. So all my professors were actually people who were working in the industry. So thanks to one of my professors, I ended up getting a summer job at a radio station in Toronto, which was called CFRB. It's now called News Talk 1010. Uh, and I managed to work there for the rest of my college career. And then, you know, then I went on to working in television and other things like that. So that's what I did for about a decade. So that's wow. how I got 
journalism. Yeah. Yeah. And so what's interesting is because I've also um, like I paid for my education myself through bartending and waitressing. So I hear what you're saying about that job. It's not an easy job. It's tough. But I think with that job, like I learned so many things just about customer service, helping people. Was there anything about that time in your life that you found most memorable that you've taken away and you still kind of like put into practice today? Yeah, it's funny. My sister and I were just chatting about that because my sister has a teenage daughter and uh, a great girl. Like a, my niece, my niece is wonderful. She's, in fact, sometimes I worry about her. She's so wonderful. I'm like, Sienna, you know, you need to like kind of like shake it up a little bit, go have a smoke and skip school. But she's just such a good kid. Um, so a couple of things that I took away from serving, and I was a server for a very, very long time. And you can say, okay, about multitasking and managing personalities. Yeah, 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 sure, fine. Um, a story that has always stuck with me, and I, I don't want to come across as negative, but it I find that in life, and I think you'll agree, most people will, all of your learning lessons come from when things don't go right, as mm. opposed to when things do go right. Um, and I remember I was probably about 20 years old, maybe 21, and I was working at Al Frisco's in Toronto. So if any of your listeners are familiar with Toronto and familiar with Toronto in the early 2000s, you might know that restaurant. It's now a Jack Astor's. It's across from the Scotiabank Theater. In fact, I was working at Al Frisco's when the Scotiabank Theater went up. I am so old. <laughs> so old. But, okay, you know what? I actually worked at Montana's right next door. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like that was kind of a gold mine. It was really great for when you're in school and you needed to make like bust your butt all summer and make your money for paying for school and stuff like that. But um, I remember this one time there was a gentleman who worked there and he was a nice guy. I would have considered him a friend. I was about 21 and he would have been 41. He was about 20 years older than me. And at the time I was like, God, that's so old. But anyway, he ended up getting sick with something. I, I don't know what he got sick with, but he came down with something and he was hospitalized. And what they did one day is they went around to all the servers and it was a big serving team and the bartenders, big, big team. So it was a big restaurant and everybody, they asked everyone to chip in, you know, at the end of the night, your tip money, 20 bucks or whatever. And I liked him. I considered him a friend, but I remember thinking I just busted my arse all day long to make a couple hundred bucks because I need to put this towards school. And I've got some serious bills that I've got to pay school and college, uh, school and rent and my car and my gas. And I'm young. So I like really every dollar counts. And to be fair, I'm old now and still every dollar counts. <laughs> I, um, I remember like sort of begrudgingly handing over some, some of my tip money after like you just bust your arse all day long and it's hot and it's hard and it's tiring. And you know, you're doing all of this on top of schoolwork. But I remember thinking to myself at the time, it actually kind of scared me. And I thought, this guy, Mike, I think his name was, is 41 years old mm-hmm. and he doesn't have any assets. He was hospitalized for reasons I don't know, but he doesn't have enough bandwidth or enough savings or enough anything to be able to pay his rent. That's why we're collecting money for him. So he, for whatever reason, has decided to live, I guess, you know, a Peter Pan lifestyle or what, what, what from my vantage point looked like a Peter Pan lifestyle where, because I remember earlier, he would also say things like, Hey, working here is just like going to the ATM. You show up and you get money and you go. And I'm like, well, except for at the ATM, you don't have to be at the ATM for eight hours, right? Sweating it out. (laughs) So I remember that imprinted on me and I really don't want to sound harsh or negative towards this guy, but I remember thinking, Aaron, and this, this is part and parcel with trying to like forge your way and be very responsible, as responsible as you can. 
in terms of entrepreneurship, but being like, no, no, you need to never be in this position. You need to be able to take care of yourself. You need to be able to be reliant upon yourself and you need to be able to have some assets, some savings, some, some buffer, whatever it can be, because you never want to be a full-fledged official adult and then have this happen to you. So that was a really scary moment in my life uh, when I was serving that, that sort of always imprinted on me and it still stays with me to this day. I don't know if that was what you were looking for, but that was a lesson that I learned very often. Yeah, no, I know. I think that's a great, I think that's a great lesson to learn, especially if you're only 20 Mm -hmm. and you learn that lesson. Like one of the biggest um, challenges, I think, especially nowadays is people are spending money like $20 to get like a burrito delivered to them from Uber. I hear like my friends, nieces and nephews talk about that. And like, maybe I'm frugal, but I'm like, I'm not spending $20 to get a burrito delivered to me. Like, yeah, 12 bucks on avocado toast. And then you're bitching that you're never going to be able to have a mortgage or something like stop spending 12 bucks on avocado toast. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's like, I think it's important. And this is part of the problem with our education system is people aren't taught about money. Mm-mm. They I aren't taught how to save money, how they should really be spending money. And so I think that that's, you know, part of the bigger challenge is that people think it comes and it goes and guess what? It does come and it does go. (laughs) Yeah. And it goes much easier than it does coming. Right. Yeah. uh, Yeah. And so, and I certainly am not, listen, like I am certainly not one to be sitting on my golden throne and sitting here on my perch and shooting all over people about where they should spend money and where they shouldn't spend money and how their savings goes. All I can say is that for me, and especially as an entrepreneur, somebody who literally eats what I kill, you know, fast forward 20, 25 years, um, I'm grateful for those lessons because, you know, it just, I just know how hard it is to earn a hundred dollars, let alone, you know, enough to put down for your house or start a business or whatever. So that was just, that was just a really important lesson for me that, that, really and it wasn't even necessarily about the money that he had or didn't have that was certainly the high level thing the deeper the deeper meaning to that was how how scary it is not to have like to how how scary it is not to have anyone or anything and that I really need to be self-sufficient and as much as I love my family as much as I love my friends at the end of the day you really have to make sure that you you're reliant on yourself because you can only go out with your hand out for love money for so long before you know it gets a little weird yeah. <laughs> or suddenly you have no friends left anymore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Something happens there. Okay. So then you go to journalism school, you end up getting, staying in that career for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And then what made you want to shift from journalism into wine? Cause you went back and you were doing your studying while you must've been working full-time. No. So this is kind of an interesting story. And this is where I think you're probably unfortunately going to lose some listeners. Everybody's about to tune out when I say this. I believe the universe pushes you in the direction you're supposed to go. And I believe the universe comes and knocks and you can ignore it. And then it'll come in and knock louder until you actually pick up, answer that door and answer that call. So uh, as I said, in my earlier sort of from zero to 20, I was really immersed in acting and performance and very interested in that. And then let's say 20 to 30, I was a broadcast journalist uh, working for places like CTV, a couple of radio stations. I wrote for the Canadian press for a while. I was doing a lot of news and politics. Uh, I did do a little bit of 
you know, what they call life and arts, but only for one summer. It was mostly politics and crime. And I covered a lot of really soul crushing things like children that were murdered and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Or, and then things that were even more soul crushing for other reasons, like the Queens Park budget. And that's just not where my passion lies. So um, I think that probably my last job was at 680 News. And pro- I remember sitting at home and, um, I was sitting on my balcony. I have a beautiful west-facing balcony. And in the distance, there's a go train rail path train track. And I was able to get home early enough that I was sitting on my balcony in the sun, having a glass of rosé. And it was now seven o'clock. And I saw the train going from, you know, going northbound. So obviously from Union, probably up to Newmarket direction. And I remember thinking, thank God I'm not on that train. And I thought, ooh, that's like... Like, thank God I'm already home and having my wine and and no longer at work. And I was like, that's bad. And it reminded me that only maybe five years before that, I got my my job at CTV. And I was my first day, I was only about 24 years old. And I was driving to work and I stopped at the stoplight and I let out a big sigh. And I thought, well, it's only 30 or 40 more years. And I thought, Jesus, like, Jesus Christ, like, how can you think this? Like, this is supposed to be the dream job. And yes, I worked really hard and I did well at storytelling and being a journalist. So I did get to the upper echelons of, you know, the the stations that I worked at. I was always a lead reporter, fill-in anchor. Like I did, I, 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 I did well in that career, but it really didn't feed my soul. And I think 680 and the people that I worked with in their wisdom, they were probably catching that energy from me because to be quite frank, they fired me after, I think I was there for about two or three years and they fired me. Um, unexpectedly one day the ax just dropped. And for a while I felt really humiliated about that. And I wanted to say things and I did say things for probably a couple years after that, I would say things like, oh, I was downsized. I was reorged. You know, I was shuffled. Oh, the ax fell, blah, blah, blah. No, no, they fired me. They were like, see you later. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Bye-bye. We don't want you. Goodbye. And I'm fine with that now because they ended up doing me the favor. And again, I think it was the universe stepping in saying, Aaron, you weren't bloody happy. We had to do something. So we dropped the ax and now it forced me to say, okay, what do I really want? Do I really want to, I mean, by this time I did have a mortgage. I was in my early thirties. I did have a certain sense of responsibility of things that I owed to life, but I was like, but that gave me a brief moment of pause to be like, is this what I want for my life? And by this point, my sister was already working as a Psalm. Um, she was having way more fun than I was. And I thought, I wanted for years before that, before my job at 680, actually, I wanted to go to small A school with her, but it ran on a Tuesday and I obviously had to go to work. So I couldn't go. So I thought, you know what, maybe this is, this is, this is the time for me. I can, I can, you know, uh, take a bit of an ego hit. Cause that means I'll have to go back to waitressing and, uh, I go to school. So I did, I went to school for being a sommelier. I waitressed the rest of the time. Um, I had to hustle and hustle hard because I knew with, you know, a mortgage and bills to pay and and sort of adult lifestyle responsibilities, I I needed to make something, I needed to make that choice valid. I couldn't very well go to sommelier school and then not become a sommelier. So luckily through dedication, hard work and hustle and a whole lot of luck, I ended up leaving sommelier school, which is only a year's worth of school. uh, But I ended up with a job to go to. So that was so 
so lucky. Um, and that was a, the job at the BNR, the Badminton and Racquet Club of Toronto, which turned out to be one of my, my more memorable jobs. It was a fantastic place to work. Uh, and I was there for a couple of years and it was, that was, that was how that happened. So that's how the transition from, you know, drama to journalism, journalism to, uh, journalism to, uh, sommelier and then the sommelier, the entrepreneur came a little bit later. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause you know, I, I, I believe in the universe piece too, like, mm-hmm. At the time when something happens, like, yes, there's grief. Yes, there's anger. There's sadness, whatever that feeling is. But, and, and we don't know why it might happen, but I do think everything does in some ways happen for a reason. And whether you're meant to change, learn or grow, um, something, something's got to give, right? Well, listen, even if you're not, if, even if you don't want to subscribe to that universal, you know, woohoo mumbo jumbo, even if, you know, there's a listener out there who doesn't want to subscribe to that philosophy, cool. But then at the very least, even for the most, you know, atheist amongst us, then all you have to think is, well, then what the hell's the point of going through that if I don't take a lesson from it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, and it does like most people that I've chatted with, because there's a couple of other people I've interviewed who also got fired <laughs> and then they started their own job, their own company. Right. Entrepreneurship. Yeah. yeah. And, and they're like more successful now than they would have been if they had stayed in a job and they're happier now too. Yep. And I've always been under the belief, like I'm not the type of person, like I've never chased money in my career. I've always, um, I do really believe you should be happy at what you do, like work, let's face it, you're going there eight hours a day, mm-hmm. at least Monday to Friday. Mm-hmm. If you're not happy doing what you're doing, it's going to bleed into the other areas of your life, right? I'm a firm believer that that's why there's so much tension and anger and misery, you know, on the 401 people honking and really upset because they're destined to go to somewhere that they don't want. Uh, all that vitriol that you'll find on the internet, the internet can be a beautiful place, but these angry comments that come from nowhere. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think if you just turn that mirror around and look at yourself and listen, like I'm not a saint by any stretch of the imagination, I can get gruff, I can get impatient, like just like anybody can. Um, but I, I firmly believe that there's so many of us and I was one of them working in a place that we're not meant to be, uh, that we don't find fulfilling and therefore, or living a life that we don't find fulfilling. And whether that means the relationship you have with your children, your parents, your spouse, whether that means the relationship you have with your coworker or the relationship you have with your job or your own body or yourself or yourself, then, then then that's like, there's a lot of us that are very unhappy. And, and in many ways, uh, I kind of think that your life's journey is all about finding your happiness, not in a trivial way, but in a way that doing things that fulfill you. So whether that means, you know, taking up a hobby with sailing or running or painting or pottery, or whether that means really working on repairing a fractured relationship you had with your parents or, you know, trying to rebuild and get to know your kids better, or maybe finally leaving a marriage that isn't working or whatever. Um, I, I really think, and that's what entrepreneurship and that's what my journey over the last 15 years has taught me is that as scary as it is, it's, and it is scary. Uh, it's ultimately worth it in the end. Yeah. I think it's worth it. If the end, if you're doing it for the right reasons, like if you know your why and your why is not just about making a million dollars or whatever that figure is that you have in your head, then it can be a much more joyful journey. 
Um, yeah, I will say though, uh, just if I can interrupt you for a second, Janet, is that like, I love making money. So I know oh, that I do too. I do too. But I think, I think the problem is a lot of people read these like Instagram ads and they're like, make a million dollars overnight, oh, yeah. like start an yeah, online yeah. store and people get caught into that marketing and mm. they actually believe that it's true. Mm, yeah. And I think anyone who has actually ever owned a business, whether it's online or offline, can tell you without a doubt, nothing happens overnight. <laughs> nothing yeah. happens while you're sleeping. <laughs> there is no miracle while you're sleeping. Yeah. No passive income? What are you talking about? Yeah, that's my favorite. My yeah. favorite is passive income. But sure. it's like, do you know what you have to do to get to that? Like you have to put in a lot of work in order to actually even get to it. And no income is ever really that passive. No. I have, um, I know people who, uh, their bulk of their revenue or the bulk of their income is they have rental properties, but that's not passive. It's not like they just sit there and the money rolls in every month. It does, but that means they're also there shoveling the driveway or repairing the toilet or painting the walls or dealing with, you know, the, can I swear on this podcast? Like yeah. dealing with the BS of, of like whiny tenants or like whatever, um, you know, raking leaves. Like there is no such thing as passive income, but I will say this because there was a, another formative part of my life. And we can talk about this later if you want, is that I did go broke twice um, after that lesson when I was a younger server. And for reasons that were, if I, you know, that I should have been more in control, but in a lot of ways, I think it's honest to say they were out of my control. So to say that money shouldn't be the thing you chase, no, it shouldn't, but let's be honest, money is kind of like oxygen. Like it, it does, it, for, I find it a very um, cavalier thing that rich people say when they're like, money isn't everything. I'm like, that's coming from somebody who's never had to worry about whether they can pay rent or pay for groceries. And money is, is actually a salve that gives you choice. Mm. It gives you breathing room and it gives you opportunity. And it gives you just a brief moment of pause to say, which road do I want to take? When you don't have money, and I've been there, when you're at the grocery store and you're about to put something on your debit card and you've, the entire time, it's taking you double the amount of time to put groceries in your cart because you're mentally adding up, okay, well, that's got to be this and that's got to be that. Okay, so I've got $75 left in my bank account. I think I've got $70. So I've got a little buffer. I don't think, and you've already got a pre-programmed excuse for when your debit card is declined and you've mm -hmm. got that anxiety of, oh, is this going to go through or is this not? That's very, very real. And it's very, um, uh, it, it's very humbling. It's absolutely terrifying. It's uh, demoralizing. And, and so, yes, you should not chase the almighty dollar as the only thing, but that's once you actually start making a good amount of money so that you have some space and some time and some runway to be able to make the right choices for you. Well, I don't know. Like, I think like, here's the, here's the example I'll throw back at you is like, you went to small A school and then you went back and you did serving in order to make money. So you could go to small A school. Mm -hmm. So you're doing what you had to, That's right. to kind of chase your passion. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that, um, and this isn't for everybody and not everybody's going to agree with it, but I, I think that if you were to stay in that reporting job and oh, then I would have been <laughs> you'd have been miserable. You'd have been yeah. miserable, right? I would have been that asshole honking on the 401 and giving everyone the finger and, you know, like, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I would have been, like, I would have been dead inside. Absolutely. 
And, and maybe there's like, maybe there's a different way that we need to start thinking about it. Like maybe we need, because people will say, oh, you can say that, do what you're passionate about, do whatever. But maybe you can still do what you're passionate about, but then you have something on the side that pays your bills. No, no, of course. Right? Like, I think it was Oprah who said, you do what you have to do until you can do what you want to do. Mm. And so to use my example of, okay, I decided to go back to psalm school and then also take, you know, the, 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 the ego deflation of, okay, I'm going back to being a server after being a headlining you know, reporter at some of Canada's busiest and biggest newsrooms. Um, that was a little bit of a kick to the ego. So yes, in that case, going back to serving was doing what I had to do while I fed the desire to do what I wanted to do. Um, but that also meant, but, but at the same time, that serving job gave me uh, enough money, enough runway, enough ability to be able to do that thing that I wanted to do. And I had an end goal in mind. What I'm saying is, is that um, for people who maybe are, um, you know, facing food scarcity, living below the poverty line, uh, I don't know, new Canadians who are still struggling to find resources, whatever that might be, yeah. uh, or you are somebody who's just entering the workforce as somebody who's saddled with a ton of debt and you are working your dream job, whether that be, you know, you're a lawyer, you're on the lawyer path or you're on the accountant path or whatever. And you're still like saddled with all this student debt, even though you've maybe still got a shiny, glorious job, uh, that can be really, it can be very, very stressful. And so I just want to be, I just want to acknowledge that, that we love to say that money isn't everything, but it kind of is at a certain point. You need it to exist in this society, yeah. 100% for sure, right? But I don't know, like I I had my school debt until I was 40 years old. Oh yeah. Still paying it off, right? And I remember when I paid it off, I was like, oh my God, it's finally done. Like, yeah. wow, this is crazy. But it's it's funny because I don't know, like I've tried to think back to that time. And I remember when I graduated, yes, I was stressed about how much debt I had, but um, I went back to my little small town and started bartending. And then I was, I ended up moving to Asia for two and a half years because I thought I would make better money, be able to travel and still pay down my debt. Right. And it's kind of interesting. Cause I, that is kind of a little bit what happened. Like I wasn't making a fortune teaching English as a second language, but I was still able to make my student loan payments and see part of the world, which was amazing. Yeah. But sure. it does. It also does come down to like, um, mentally how we're processing this stuff as well as kind of like what we're willing to do in order to kind of manage it um and I mean manage it mentally right manage yeah. it mentally and physically paying it back for sure yeah what, like my I was raised by fantastic parents and uh both my parents were hard workers and they had great jobs and they gave us a beautiful life and um we really didn't go without and but what they did teach us and one of the best lessons that they've also taught us was how to hustle. Mm -hmm. So I was working and so was my sister. We started like I started working at like, you know, the Tim Hortons or the fast food place or whatever when I was 14, you know, the mall when I was 16 working at clothing stores. And of course, my parents paid for lots of things for us, including, you know, most of our clothes, all of our toiletries. You know, we never like we we were very privileged growing up. Um, not a lot of kids get that same um, indulgence. Uh, we weren't, we weren't necessarily, I guess we were kind of spoiled, but, um, but they were, they were very clear, like, Hey, I, I give you this 
you want more than that, well, cool. Um, you got to pay for it yourself. So my sister and I both, thanks to my parents, they gave us the drive of you get out there and you hustle. And if you want something, you better earn it and no one's going to hand it to you. So you go get it. And, uh, and so I was, I'm very grateful to my parents for that lesson. Yeah, me too. Like I've worked since I was 13. I remember one of the first jobs I had was like working in a convenience store and uh, my parents, like my mom did not want me to work in a convenience store. Cause she's like, what if someone robs you? And I'm like, I don't care. I'm doing it. I want to make my own money. And, but I'll tell you, like, even a job like that, you learn stuff that you love and stuff that you don't like. And that you don't ever want to do again. Like one of the jobs where we had to actually like clean washrooms and stuff. Yes. I'm like, I don't want to clean a public washroom ever again. <laughs> no, no. And you know, it's funny. My dad always says like, I got a job when I was 15 at a place that doesn't even exist anymore. It was called Olden Mills Portrait Studios. And this is where you went and you had those awkward family photos. So you actually went to like a portrait studio, kind of like the Sears portrait studios. And they had the backdrop, you know, maybe it was the library, you know, the, you know, they had the different pull down screens. Anyway, so I would cold call and uh, this was during the recession of the, it would have been about 80, 91, 92. And uh, Guelph being a university town, the summer jobs were either taken up by university students, but also a lot of jobs dried up because all the university students left. So Guelph got very quiet in the summer, but I needed to have a job because I wanted to do some stuff. So I got this job at Olin Mills Portrait Studio and, um, and uh, uh, you had to make at least one sale every three days or you were fired. And so you sat in a carol, I remember study carols. You sat in a carol and it had a printed, a large printed Bristol board script uh, with different arrows. So if people said no, how to combat, you know, the no's and how to, how to proceed through the yeses. And you literally just went through the call sheets. Obviously I'm really dating myself and you would go through the script and you would try and sell. But I ended up having that job for the entire summer. And my dad insists to this day, he's like, that was the best job you ever had because in a job where you're really on the line and you're only guaranteed a job for three days and mo people just went in and out of there, like a factory, I managed to hang onto that job for you know eight or ten weeks until I got a job at the mall so I'm sure this isn't very interesting to your mm -hmm. listeners because talking about what we did as kids to hustle and make money but uh, I know a guy who's very successful now very 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 successful he's a real estate developer you know lives in Forest Hill is you know a multi-millionaire if not tipping the scales into you know close like hundreds of millions quite an quite a successful guy but he grew up in um like Jane and Finch, uh, you know, and his first job was hustling, selling hot dogs for, I think it was a quarter a hot dog at the baseball games. And he ended up making something like $30,000 that summer, which eventually went towards paying for his first rental property. So wow. I, think, I think like that kind of stamina and hard work, especially if you, if you have young people in your life now, if you can give them the gift of having them work really hard cleaning toilets, yeah. uh, you know, having the phone hung up on them, you know, running to make, get somebody a hot dog. If you can give them that gift, I think that is going to suck for them at the time, but be invaluable decades later. Yeah, for sure. Well, and you know, the job that you're doing, I think sales is so hard. Like even now, like even now at this age, my sister is an amazing salesperson. I tell everyone how awesome she is, but like for me, I hear a no and I'm like, okay, bye. <laughs> See you later. Yeah. But okay, let's get back to um, you finished small A school. How did you and your sister decide to start a business together? 
So um, what ended up happening was my sister was the sommelier at the Fairmont Royal York. And then she moved on to, it's now changed names, but when the AGO was going through its uh, initial renovations, you know, 15 years ago or whatever, and they opened up their restaurant and they called it Frank. So she was the first sommelier to go into that space. I went to the badminton and racket club and then I moved on to a, uh, a restaurant downtown Toronto called canoe and so between the hotel and Frank and canoe and the restaurant both Courtney and I sort of dealt with the same demographic of people and these were people who you know traveled a lot whether it be for work or for business really enjoyed great food and great wine, had a high level of interest in it. And we had a really good, like she and I equally had good rapports with our, our customer base, our client base. And so it came across really ad hoc. Like it came across as, you know, people would say, oh, my wife's birthday is on the weekend. Will you come over and lead us in a wine tasting? Or my cellar is a mess. Can you help me figure out what should go and what should stay or get it a little bit more organized? Or you get these great trips to Niagara. Can you show me some great places to go or whatever? And so we would do things like, okay, give me a hundred bucks and I'll come and do it. Or, you know, and half the time we'd be doing it for free. Like it just, it really was stupid. And then eventually the conversation started to evolve where Courtney and I were like, you know, I think there's there's a market here. Like there's a real dearth in the marketplace. People are asking for wine events, whether it be a wine tasting or a wine tour or whatever. Um, maybe we can fulfill that need. And so we decided to open up the Wine Sisters while we were still working and um, really had zero idea what we were doing. And, and we just sort of built it from there. Now, Courtney has taken a step back from the business. She's realized that entrepreneurship is uh, admirable, but not for her. So she's still my consulary. I love her to death. I talk to her a million times a day. There's, there's no, she didn't leave on bad terms. We're, we're great. She just accepted that entrepreneurship isn't for her. But in the 11 years that we've been in business, I've now got another, like I've grown the team. So we have other sommeliers, which is, I'm grateful for. I think they are, uh, I've, I've been lucky enough to surround myself with some amazingly talented, sophisticated, fun, creative women that are on the team. So. Um, yeah, so that's that's how how the how the Wine Sisters was born was just out of really people asking us and us saying, you know what, I think there's a need here, and and then following through on that. Yeah, and so um, I want to talk to you about the name of your business because the Wine Sisters, like I get how it started out, and then now that your sister isn't involved in the business, do you have any regrets with the name? Have you ever thought about rebranding? Well, we started, so funny, we started and our official name is Henderson Sommeliers Inc. Our last name is Henderson. So Henderson Sommeliers Inc. And the first website, which we paid like a friend a thousand bucks to create or something, which even then was way too much, but it was, it had, it was, it was, our main color was black and it had like these swirly calligraphy and the pictures of the barrels. And, you know, it was all very like pinkies in the air and yes, smithers, like all something that was completely not us. And we were about, you know, a couple months and we're like, this is just not us. It just feels so fake and so hot. And then, but when we would go to wineries or when we met with colleagues or go to tastings, people would be like the sisters, the twins, the wine sisters. And we said, the wine sisters, that's what we should be. And you're right. There have been times where I've thought about the name and I wonder if it's maybe a bit too juvenile or, but now um, we do have other quote unquote sisters. So the team, if you look at the website, there's, you know, six of us, some of the, some of it has evolved since, since the pandemic, but so now it's still the wine sisters. And 
Um, yeah, I don't know if rebranding is appropriate at this point. Like certainly we're not, you know, universally known, but we're well known enough that I don't know if rebranding the name would make the most sense. So I have to, I have to really think about that. Before. There's only two reasons why I asked that one is um, like, I think you have all female staff, right? Is that correct? Like all female? Yeah. Oh, you do. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We don't have them now, but in the past we have had three different men who four different men who've worked for us. And I, my first question to them is like, are you comfortable being a wine sister? And they're, you know, obviously progressive modern men. They're like, yes, that's fine. Like, yeah, that's cool. Cause I did see on your website, uh, like I like the branding around, like, these are all my sisters. Like, even if they're not blood sisters, they're my wine sisters. Right. So like yeah. that totally makes sense. But the only reason I asked about the name is because like I started orange fish in 2006. Mm -hmm. And I remember, um, one time I was going into this like conference somewhere and people were like, Oh, there's orange fish. She's here. And I'm like, why did I name my business that? I don't want to be known as yeah. like orange. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you wonder about branding decisions in general. Like, <laughs> you know, why do people call anything anything? And and yeah, for now, I think the wine sister and, and plus what we really want to get across to our clients. And we deal, um, you know, 95, maybe 98% of our business is all corporate. So we work mostly with banks, insurance, and law firms, mm. not because we selected them, but because they've selected us, because those are the firms that entertain the most. But certainly we've worked with technology or pharmaceutical or whatever, but, um, but we work with them so much. And we have a, t a tendency to mostly work with sort of at least middle management and a lot of sort of C-suite people. And, and, that name hasn't hurt us in terms of our viability or in terms of the trust that our clients give us. And in fact, a lot of the time when people come to us, they say, okay, well, we're, we're doing a, an event for all the VPs, but they're still really fun. I'm like, yeah, of course they're just because you put on the blue suit and have the corner office. It doesn't mean you've lost your sense of humor. It doesn't mean you only want to be serious. Like, oh, I have no time for fun and games in my life. Of course not. And plus we're talking about wine. Like, like we're not, we're not curing cancer. We're not solving wars. We're, we're, we're showing people how to party. So, so having a sense of whimsy and lightness is, is great for us. Um, and hopefully what people can see by our branding, by the, the tonality of our website, uh, even the language that we choose to use on the website is that a hundred percent, the wine sisters, anyone who works for the wine sisters has to be certified. You can't just be like, Hey, I just really love wine. I want to share my passion. That's terrific. God love you. But if you want to work for the Wine Sisters, you had to have gone through a significant amount of training. And so we know our stuff, but we're not stuffy about it. And that's that's our goal. As, and especially from being my teaching side, I run my own wine school weekly on uh, Advantage Venues, my partner venue, downtown Toronto. We also run it online. And of course, through the teachings that I do at George Brown, nobody learns, nobody learns by that Charlie Brown teacher, wah, 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 wah. nobody learns when the pinkies are in the air and you're so stiff and reserved and there's that weird quiet throughout the room. And all you can think about, I don't care if you're listening to your company's audit report, or if you're listening, like, you know, listening to somebody lecture on, you know, RSP savings, or if you're listening to somebody lecture on wine, when it has that heaviness, all you can think about is let me get out of here. I just want to get out of here. Um, but when you can lighten it up, when you can have a little bit of fun, when you can take it easy and explain your 
subject in a way that people will say, oh, I'm having a few laughs, that's going to make this, I'm going to remember this. So when people leave our tastings, we've left them empowered enough to say, now I feel better when I go to the wine store, I know what I like. When I go to the restaurant, I know how to order. Uh, and I learned that because I was laughing and having a great time. I wasn't so rigid that I was worried about spilling my wine or spilling my milk or maybe like my phone going off. Like it was just, I could relax. And when I'm relaxing, I'm absorbing. So one of my best compliments I've ever received from somebody is she came up to me after the tasting and she said, you know, Erin, I knew when we were going to have this tasting that it would be pleasant, right? Like wine tastings are pleasant. They're, they're fine. They're lovely. They're a lovely way to spend an evening. And she said, but you know what? That was really fucking fun. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but, and you know what? Like the, your name is like memorable, right? And it is unique. And it's probably especially even more unique in the wine space. <laughs> um, so it's easy to remember, which is good, but it does maybe g- give people that like, Hey, I'm, I'm listening to my sister here. Like what's she going <laughs> to tell me? <laughs> Yeah. So, so we, we, we really, so there's a lot of effort and there's a lot of thought that goes in. There was a lot of thought that went into the name. There's a lot of thought that still continues to go into the branding, uh, the language on the website or in our blogs. Um, it might seem whimsical and off the cuff, but it's actually quite considered, um, of how we want to present ourselves because if people do come to us, one of our bigger mistakes in the past was when somebody came to us and they really did crave a very buttoned up, very formal. Uh, and that's just not something that we can deliver on because that's just not our, our that's just not us. And so uh, we really want to strive to let people know that if you do need the pinkies in the air, the monocle wearing, I think we even say this on the website, like it's, it's just not us. So you're going to need to go to somebody else because we won't be able to deliver what you need. Now, luckily, nobody ever wants that, but yeah, <laughs> you never know. There's always a first. Always Have a you, um, so you've had the business 11 years. What do you think um, has been your biggest challenge to date? COVID? Um, <laughs> but you so- guys pivoted well during COVID. Yeah. The, the beauty about being a small business is that and there are lots of drawbacks to being a small business, but one of the beauties is that we can move quickly. We don't have to go to a board of directors. We don't have to go through a lot of red tape. We don't have to go through a lot of bureaucracy to be able to switch, like change our sales and, and respond quickly. If you're a massive company, you know, a bank or, you know, an established law, like something really big, it's kind of like trying to turn the Titanic before it hits the iceberg. Now, of course, they also have massive other things like teams who have seen the iceberg way before we have, but like, let's not get down that rabbit hole. So for us, we're just able to uh, see the, see it, stop, drop and roll, pivot, you know, or as I like to call it, the COVID what to see, you know, the COVID two step, uh, and then be able to respond. So yeah, during COVID, we were able to switch from, uh, in-person events to virtual events fairly quickly, uh, with reasonable ease and, uh, very little sort of barrier to entry. So we're able to move quickly and keep the lights on. And that was, that was at the time, that was the goal. Now, two years later, we're not only just keeping the lights on, but we're looking at ways to shape that and really um, continue to grow with that. But I would say outside of COVID, um, I think the biggest challenge facing any entrepreneur, any small business will always be cash flow. Mm-hmm. And that's the ugly words that no one ever wants to talk about. But at some point, you're going to run out of cash. Like unless you've got a 
boatload of investors, in which case I'd be very nervous about that. Like I always get very nervous about, you know, see these Silicon Valley things and they're like, oh, round A funding and $1 billion. I'm like, what the hell is going on there? Uh, <laughs> but but you will run out of cash and, and not just because there's so much expenses leading up to launching your business, but you know as well as I do that you might have clients that will pay you in 90 day terms and you know they're going to pay you. But until then, it's beans and rice because like you don't have that you don't have 90 days of runway in some cases. So uh, I remember in the early days, like I went a full year without getting a haircut. Like yeah. I just I just couldn't find well, you, women's haircuts are like 200 bucks. Right. By the time you get the cut in the color. Is that fair? No. Is it reality? Yes. So I just couldn't find an extra two hundred dollars that I could put for my haircut. Um, so so. You know, I think cash flow is always going to be your biggest challenge. Um, and then getting your name out there and establishing that trust will be the second one. I was lucky. I was able to lean on my journalism background. So I wrote for the Huffington Post. Now, the Huffington Post, I wrote for free, but I did two columns a week. And that was just a way to be able to broadcast and market myself for free. So I leaned on the skills and qualities that I already had. Um, so what I lack in accounting or anything that's really at all, you know, beneficial, uh, I just leaned on the creativity that I had and I just went to places and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and that's how people were able to find me is by me just simply writing for free and using that as marketing. And I remember because people will always say, "Ooh, well, you know, if you write for free, you know, uh, you know, your time is worth something. And I'm like, yeah, but all I've got is time. I've got no money and I've got a ton of time because people aren't calling anyway. So I might as well use that time. And instead of paying and having a marketing budget where I'm paying for a billboard or paying for an ad or paying for you know something, instead I'm using that and I'm using that time and writing something and hopefully that will have longevity and live on, which it actually has. Yeah. And you know, I'm like, I'm kind of a huge proponent and maybe it's because I also enjoy writing, but I've struggled with like getting, like I've had a social media manager in the past, but it wasn't yeah. a great experience. Um, and also like going out to copywriting, I'm like, why am I going to pay all this money for copywriting when I can write? Like to me, it's, that those pieces are a challenge to outsource because you have the skill, but it does take time. Like everything takes so much more time than you think it's going to. I have a weekly newsletter and every week I'm like, I'm going to bang this out in an hour. And every week it takes me five hours. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. it's true. It's true. It's true. So what is it? Um, do you think that when you started this business to now, what is it that you still love the most? Like what pieces of the business do you love the most? Making money. Uh, no, um, <laughs> you're chasing the money. You're chasing the money. No, <laughs> And that's a good thing. Cause you have to, I think it's really important for me. I'm big on journaling. I'm big on taking an end of a uh, month, not just like looking at your PL for sure. Not well, not for sure not, but I'm really big on like, do we hit goals that aren't necessarily financial? Because the last thing I want is for five or 10 years from now to be like, oh shoot, was I leaning my ladder against the wrong wall? Like, did I, am I still doing what I want? And especially during darker times, like earlier in the pandemic, you know, I always say, you know, you can't be swabbing the deck. If you're swabbing the deck, you're not steering the ship. And, and so uh, I like to take in monthly uh, inventories, both of my business and of my life and be like, you know, how, how are we doing? Are we, are we 
the life that I envision? Are we on that way? The business that we envision, are we on that course? So uh, what I still love about the business is, is I, I, I love the creativity that I get. Um, I'm lucky enough that the business is established enough that we are able to take on clients that we love working with, that we find interesting and fun. Um, I don't have to work with people that I think are going to be aggressive or abrasive or difficult. So that's, 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 but that goes back to the money thing as well. Now that we're 11 years in and we're not scrambling just to make sure that the rent is paid, we've got a little bit in the bank and we're okay. Uh, and enough of a reputation that people do want to work with us. So that's where the money gives you choice. I don't have to take every gig that comes my way or, or take on every client that, that comes my way. And that's, that's a huge, like, relaxation, peace of mind. Um, so I really like uh, the creativity that comes with it. I really like being able to see how things are building. Um, I really like to be able to deliver new experiences. So I stand very much in the finance, uh, sorry, I stand very much in the creative of it and, and the enjoyment of how we're going to, what's the next thing that we're going to build? What's the next service that we're going to deliver? How are we going to surprise, delight and thrill and please our clients even more? Uh, and I even enjoy a little bit of the healthy competition where now more and more people are, are popping up to do these wine events businesses. And I want to be like, okay, I see you girl. Good luck to you. But I'm like, I, I, I'm, I'm enjoying the game of that a little bit. And it's, 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 it's perhaps a little, I don't even want to say cutthroat. It's, you know, a little bit, you know, suits or billions or whatever kind of show, but I like, I like the game of business and I like being able to um, move forward and see that needle move forward. Yeah, it's interesting because I heard something this I was listening to a podcast this morning and um, the gentleman was talking about how one of the things that his parents instilled in him was the value of good competition. Mm -hmm. And so his parents owned like dance studios in New York. And I guess when they would train teachers, whatever teachers would, they have students, but then some of their instructors would go off and start their own dance studio. Yeah. And as a young boy, he was always like, but aren't you, aren't you mad at the mom and dad for like leaving and starting something else? And he's like, I was always so perplexed because his parents were like, no. And they'd stay friends with them and they'd encourage them on. And he was always like, why, why are you like that? And they're like, because competition is good. We want as many people as possible to be dancing. And we're still the best known for dancing because we're now we're at the top of the competition. But the more people that have some level of experience with a certain type of service, whether they enjoy it or they don't enjoy it, they're always going to look for better, right? Mm -hmm. So what can, how can we one up this one for our next get together? So if you become known as like the person that's kind of always like pushing and still changing the experience, then people will always come to you, right? Well, and I think that it's, it's really easy for everyone. And certainly myself included, it's easy to be like resting on your laurels to be like, no, I'm the best. And then, you know, a new business pops up and you're like, oh, okay. Am I the best? What am I doing? That's not the best. I need to be like, how do I ensure? How do I keep my place on that? I, I, I agree. Healthy competition is very good. I always liken it to this, at least in my industry, Niagara, uh, which is, I don't know where people are tuning in from, but Niagara is the largest and probably the most popular wine region in Ontario and you know I think it gets something ridiculous like 10 or 15 million visitors a year or at least it did pre-COVID like 
tens of millions of people go there, which just seems mind boggling to me. Um, but would they get that same kind of visitorship if there was just one winery? No. But now that there is, if memory serves correctly, I think there's something along the lines of like 80 wineries in Niagara. Well, okay, so that means that they're all dividing up to some degree that that, that, that 10 million visitors or whatever the number is of visitors that get there. Okay, but I'd rather be one of 80 dividing up 10 million than one by myself and maybe get 200 people. Like it just makes more sense. A rising tide can lift all boats. And what it does do is it sharpens the skills of the people who are doing well and keeps them sharp and keeps them on their game. And for those that are in it for the wrong reasons, well, they get shoved off really quickly and left in the wake. So it really does make you, it, it makes you better. It just truly makes you better. Yeah, 100%. Like I went through a period probably around 2015 where I felt like I had lost my competitive drive. Mm -hmm. So I'm like an ex-athlete, right? So I played varsity volleyball at McMaster. I played some pro beach volleyball, always competing. I always loved winning. Even in business, I want to win. I want to be the best. But I did. Like in 2015, I was like, I, I didn't feel like winning anymore. And it was like, what is happening? But it's just a form of burnout, right? Um, And then to kind of like get back into that, I made some massive changes to reignite my competitive spirit, which really worked for me. But I do think you need a little bit of that competitive spirit to like be successful. Yeah, 100%. You really, really do. You cannot rest on your laurels. And the more I see in any industry, the more I see people saying, you know, um, this is what we did in 2015. And, you know, 10 years ago, we're looking back at 10 years ago when we launched this thing. I'm like, okay, that was 10 years ago. And awesome. What are you doing today? And what are you going to do tomorrow? And what are you going to, so think about it. If I got, if I went to um, my bank and my bank said, oh, here's your RSP. And this did really well 10 years ago. It was great. I'd be like, so what? What's it doing today? Uh, or if I went to my doctor and they're like, yeah, 10 years ago, man, I was known as the best I don't know, heart surgeon or whatever. I'd be like, great. And so what's happened since then? Like, <laughs> what's going on? What's going yeah. on? So, so I don't know. And I, I, so I think having, keeping the, keeping sharp is, is important for, for your business, but important for you, for important for your brain, important for your own enthusiasm for life. Yeah. I think to be honest, like, I think if you stop growing personally, it affects your business too. Oh, sure. Right? Absolutely. So Yeah. Um, okay. So Aaron, I'm so aware of your time. I'm so appreciative that you could uh, join me today. Uh, this has been great. I want to have another conversation with you, but I have a question for you. Before yeah. I... um, so I asked this question to everybody. I don't know if you're a fan of Tim Ferriss, but I love him. And he has this question. He asks everybody and I'm going to adapt it because we're in Toronto, but say, for example, you had a massive billboard in Dundas square. Uh-huh. And that billboard could say anything that you want it to say, what would it say? What message would you want people to read? Pay me. Give me. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, those questions are always so big. And it's so, are we talking about in relation to business, in relation to our lives? Um, it can be, it can be anything. I've had people that relate it to business. I've had people that relate it to their own personal development. It's a message that you think people need to hear. You know, it's easy to say, um, 
you know, and it, and it's, it's only what I've learned so far. Um, and I, I plan on living at least another 60 or 70 years if, if everything goes well. So, so from what I've learned so far, I really, really think, and it sounds, it sounds like trite and it sounds like a bit of a trope, but you will be a better person. And by you being a better person, the world will be a better place and a happier place if you can be true to who you are. And that's, but that's harder than it seems because, you know, earlier when we were talking about know your why and find your passion, there's a lot of people out there who find it very stressful. So like, I don't know what my passion is and I don't know what my why. And I have to be honest, there's a lot of times, even to this day, where I'm like, what is my why? And my why might change from month to month or year to year. Um, but I do think that the best decisions in my life have been, and they've been the hardest decisions in my life. And there have been times where I've been crying on the couch because of these decisions, despite them being the best of my life, where staying true to me and leaving reporting and, you know, choosing not to marry somebody that probably, you know, would have looked great on paper and staying true to me in every facet of my life, as hard as it is, and as many mistakes as I've made along the way, because I'm not saying it's smooth sailing at all. It's really hard. I can't stress that enough. But by staying true to me, I really feel like I'm on the right path to where I'm supposed to go. Yeah, I love that. I love yeah. it. It's true. I think, I think, yes, people search for their why or even who they are. And what makes it so much uh, more challenging is other people telling them who they should be or society telling them who they should be. And so it makes it so much more confusing to really, like, unless you're really willing to like kind of dig deep and stay true to your values, what you think, what it is that you want, it's, it's challenging. It's yeah. challenging. There's a lot yeah. of noise out there. And one of the things I hate so, so much are things like the 30 under 30s. And you're like, fuck off. Show me the, you know, 60s, over, like the, the 70s over 70s, the people who have had their hearts broken, but have picked up and carried on, or the people who got their doctorate at 82, or the people who started a business at 68, or the person who finally left a shitty marriage at, you know, 52, or whatever, the people who've overcome real trials and tribulations. And I'm not suggesting that you don't have trials and tribulations when you're younger, everything is relative. But you know, there's no race. And what are you racing to death? Like you do you. So if you don't own a house by the time you're 38, that's okay. If you haven't been married by the time you're 50, that's okay. If you are still trying to figure out what you want to do with your life at 35, that's okay. I think one of the saddest things is, and, it, and it's easy to do, and, and my heart goes out to these people truly. So this is not coming from a place of smugness. When you are like, oh, okay, so I'm now 28, so I better get married, and then I better have my baby by 31. And you know, maybe you're marrying somebody who isn't perfect for you, and maybe you don't even really want to have a kid, or you do, but you hope that that's going to be like Instagram worthy, and you're going to get the cool, you know, carriage and stuff, and that's going to make you part of a club. But then, you know, the kids now want, and you're feeling lonelier than ever. Like, you know, I read a really great quote or a really great chapter or something somewhere where it's like loneliness is not being 
you know, alone sleeping on a futon when you're X number of years old, loneliness, and I have actually lived this, loneliness is being in the same house with somebody you don't belong to, living a life you don't want and working at a job you don't want. That's lonely. So um, I say this with all the compassion, truly, truly, truly. And, you know, my journey is far from over. And there are many, many 90 degree hills that I've still got to you know, I have not scaled the mountain. I am just maybe at the first summit. Like I've got miles and miles and miles to go. But one thing I can look back on my life on and say, you know, if it all ended tomorrow, I can say with pride and I can say with certainty that while my life is far from perfect and it may not be somebody else's picture of brilliance, I've stayed true to myself and I can wake up every morning being like, I'm pretty happy with who I am and where I'm at and where I'm at. And that's that. That's that's amazing. That's awesome. I love that. And, and I can't wait to see the mountains you go up in the future. Um, but this is probably a perfect spot to end. So, oh, but I want to ask you um, if people want to follow you, hmm. where should they follow you? Where should they go? So uh, a couple of things that you can do, you can go to the winesisters.com. So it's the winesisters, plural.com. Uh, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. I get I got lots of compliments, which I'm so grateful for. I put a lot of work into them, but where we give you entertaining tips, wine recommendations, cocktail recipes, all the things. Uh, our YouTube channel is growing slowly but surely. Uh, so again, every week we put out a video with, that's where we teach you how to eat, drink, and entertain like a pro. Uh, and then Instagram is the best place as well. That one's weird. Uh, that one's at the Wine Sisters, but it's the Wine Sisters has little underscores between the words so it's at the underscore wine underscore sisters uh, and that's where we put out daily content um so yeah so all, all that's where you can find those are the three best places to find it okay great i'll add those to the show notes as well and thank you so much for your time today i really enjoyed this conversation it was my honor you made it a ton of fun and uh yeah i've never met a microphone i didn't like so thank you for your interest i'm super flattered that you would even ask me on the show thank you